This podcast is a quest for well-being, a quest for a meaningful life through the exploration of fundamental truths, enlightening ideas, insights on physical, mental, and spiritual health. The inspiration is love. The aspiration is to awaken new ways of thinking that can lead us to a new way of being. Being well. Welcome to Body, Mind, and Soul Healing Conversations. Valeria interviews Karen Traeger. After 18 years of practicing law in Seattle, Karen Traeger felt an unmistakable call to explore the story of her in-laws, Sam and Esther Goldberg. Educated at Barnard College and New York University Law School, where she was editor-in-chief of NYU Law Review, Traeger made the momentous decision to retire from her law practice and pull together the threads of a family story she had heard for many years. The result of her three-year inquiry is the widely praised book, My Soul is Filled with Joy, a Holocaust Story. In it, Traeger chronicles both Sam and Esther Goldberg's journey, including Sam's escape from the death camp Treblinka, as well as her family's experiences in Poland when they retraced the path from Treblinka to the pit in the Polish forest where they hid until their liberation. As Traeger became invigorated and inspired by the people she encountered, Sam and Esther's story became her story, too. Since the book's publication, Traeger has crisscrossed the country to bring this compelling story to a wide audience. In June 2019, she traveled to Poland to launch the Polish translation of the book and speak in Warsaw and at the Krakow Jewish Festival. She has been named to the Jewish Book Council Authors Network and the Seattle Holocaust Center for Humanity Speakers Bureau. Her perspectives have been shared in the Forward and the Jewish Press. She is ready to speak to audiences around the world in person or via video hookup. Meet Karen at karentrager.com. Here is the interview with Karen Trager. In your own words, who is Karen Traeger? Karen Traeger is a woman who lives in Seattle, Washington, who works very hard to make the world a place that she wants to live in and tries to help others to make that same kind of world. So before we talk about some of the topics in your book or about your book itself, My Soul is Filled with Joy, a Holocaust Story, I have a few warm-up questions, as I mentioned off record. So the first one for you had to be this one. What does it mean to be a human being? That is a question that I have thought about a lot in the course of my research and writing of this book. And it's a very complicated question because to be a, what it means to me to be a human being is to be a very complicated entity that's on this planet trying to survive and 
that one of the conclusions I came to after digging deep into, which I'm, I'm sure we'll get into more, but digging deep into the evils of World War II and the Holocaust was that every human being has within ourselves the possibilities for being the kindest, most open-hearted person. But at the same time, we have equally, it just as equally, the opportunity and within us as humans to be the most evil and to be the most, what, what I consider to be the most horrific, take the most horrific actions against other humans or against other creatures that also live on the planet. And so because I saw so starkly both sides of the human, the human character, I've come to the conclusion that it's a, it's a reality that we just have to live with, that we live in this space between the good and the evil. And each of us has a choice about how our humanity will be played out in the world. We can choose if we're going to be the kind, good, truthful, honest people, or if we're going to be the evil, terrible people. And it is left to us to decide which part of, of what it means to be human that we're going to express. So I feel that being human is to be fully alive and to find the place within you that that you want to express. I, I hope it's the good part, but to find it and to use it in a way that's that brings to life your soul and your spirit. The idea of choice, I agree 100%. We all have a choice. So we can be, let's say, good or bad, if we have to use extremes, that the opposites. Have you seen a human being, one human being, being both equally bad and good, or just one or the other? Well, I've never, in my, um, in my personal experience, I've never seen someone who I think is really evil and is really good and like seen the, the extremes come out in one person that I've known myself. I've read very confusing and upsetting stories about things that happened in World War II where you had someone who did the most evil things that you can imagine. I mean, murdering babies and just like, just the most awful things, but then turns around and does something that's kind or that's good. In fact, like I know we're going to get to the book, but just to give an example that I ran across in my in my father-in-law's life, my father-in-law was a survivor of, of the death camp Treblinka. And that is a place where it was really awful. 870,000 people were, were murdered there. And there was this Nazi officer who's nicknamed the Lalka. His name is Kurt Franz, but he's nicknamed the Lalka because that means in Polish, it means the doll, like the beautiful doll. And I guess he had a really, I mean, I've seen pictures of him. He had a beautiful face. and But he was like the most sadistic, awful Nazi officer in Treblinka, in my opinion. And he would go around torturing and murdering people for fun. But if it weren't for that awful Nazi officer who ex extended kindness to my father-in-law, Sam Goldberg, he would never have survived. And that's a crazy thing. You have one of the most evil human beings that, that, that God ever put on the planet, who for some reason took whatever little bit of humanity and kindness he had within him, and he extended it to my father-in-law and helped him survive. So go figure, go oh, figure. God. I don't know. I don't know how to put those two things into my brain at the same time, but it is true. It is definitely true that that happened. So what comes to mind for me is that it might be that they are not making that choice. They're just um, living without awareness and making no choice and just going 
not with the flow of life, which I believe to be based on unconditional love. So I don't think that's the flow of life, but just um, maybe the flow of being a human without awareness, without love. It's the only thing I can think of. They didn't make that choice. Yeah, I, that's a very interesting explanation of like what what was going on for the Lalka, let's say, as an example, or or there were, I know there were, you know, others that had that kind of a situation. But it's hard for me to let him off like that and say that he wasn't making a choice. He did such evil things that that he was choosing to do it. And I think he was also choosing for some reason that I don't understand to be kind to my father-in-law, Sam. But yeah, so I agree with your the premise of what you just said, but I, I don't want to let this guy off too easily. Do you know what I mean? I, I do understand that. But that, Karen, makes me think about the idea of not thinking for ourselves and letting other people kind of lead the way. We see that all the time. People not taking responsibility for their own minds, their own way of life, their physical health. And they're just going by what other people think and do and want us to do. And it might be that too. So then I call it like being lost. So now you don't have, you don't make a choice. So others will make it for you. That situation specifically really makes me think about not making a choice and letting others and other influences to lead the way for you. Yeah, that's an interesting approach. And I can't say that that's not the reality of what happens in these kind of cases. I don't know. I just know that that it, that those were the facts on the ground and what was going on in terms of his, the neurons that were going through his brains, it's so hard to analyze that, you know? Mm, true. And some people are born this way too. I think we call them, we have a name, a clinical name, psychopath. Oh, yes. They don't feel, there's no empathy. Yeah, it's almost like being a lion, being an animal and doing anything for survival or for pleasure. Yeah, it is disturbing. I agree. I remember when I found out about all these things, oh, I couldn't sleep for a while because I was naive about the human nature. I have a few more warm-up questions. The next one, you use the word joy. So do you connect joy to happiness? What is joy to you, Karen? Joy can bring happiness. I don't think they're exactly the same. That's a good question. I never thought of that framing before in terms of the word joy. I think joy, when I use the word, in fact, I use the the title of the book comes from, not from my mouth, so to speak, but from the mouth of one of the grandson of one of the one of the righteous Gentiles, one of the saviors, people who helped my in-laws when they were in hiding. They wouldn't have survived without the help of these two families named the Stish. And their grandson didn't really know the whole story about what his grandparents had done during the war. And when I connected with him, it was, of course, you know, through the Internet and through someone who knows Polish and helped me find him. At the end of the conversation, he said in, in Polish, but my friend translated, he said, my heart is full and my soul is filled with joy. And I, that was so impacted by his statement. And then like all the things that happened to me over the course of the three years when I was researching and writing the book brought me, even though it's a Holocaust story, so much joy in the connections that I made with people then that's why I decided to use that title. But so to focus on the word joy, its relationship to happiness, joy to me feels more like something that's that's really deep inside of you. Like you, I, you can be happy if someone gives me an ice cream cone, I'm gonna be happy. Like, thank you, that's, that's awesome. That's not gonna bring me joy. What brings me joy is something that, that I kind of have to dig deep for 
it's something that's really inside of me that's going to come out and burst open into the world from something amazing that happens like like having an hour long conversation with this man in Poland who I'd never met before and now it is part of my story and part of my life in in this beautiful way and that is joyful it's something spiritual what do you think the purpose of the human experience is is there an ultimate purpose to the experience of being alive i guess i believe that there is i don't know for certain because in the limited amount of time that we're granted to be alive which is finite as unfortunately we all we all know too well we don't really know you don't really know what you're here for you can try to figure it out and do your best but i think that each person has to determine what their purpose is and do the best they can to achieve it i um it's interesting that you brought up that as a concept because i've been thinking about this topic cuz i've never before read the very famous book the alchemist and my 21 year old daughter said mom you haven't read this book you should read it and i started reading it i haven't finished it yet and it's so beautiful and one of the things that that i've been really sitting with so to speak is this concept of that he brings up in the first half of the book about the a person's personal legend and the, he uses that term to be the person's mission in life and that our goal is to seek out our personal legend by and therefore achieve our mission in life and we do it by facing the good and the bad and by by facing our fears and by and by confronting our dreams and 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 saying that's my dream i'm going to go after it and i'm going to try to achieve my mission and create my personal legend and i that's really resonated with me because you know i practiced law for you know about 20 years or so i have four kids and i took some time off so it was like 30 years since i've really thought about how my in-law story should be a book that can be shared by the world and it was a dream that i had that that it could come to be i never really thought it would be me who did it but then i decided one day that it was it was my personal legend and my mission now to use the the word you know the the language that the alchemist has provided paul coleo not sure if i'm pronouncing his last name right coleo Col uh, paulo coelho yeah it's a brazilian writer right yes yeah. thank you you can you can pronounce that much much better than i do he's given me some new language to to articulate what what i chose to do uh you know a number of years ago by leaving my law practice and focusing on researching and writing and now trying to publicize and get the story out into the world about about this particular holocaust story. Yeah, so I feel like we all have a mission and in in these words, you know, a, a personal legend to write. And we have to confront our fears and confront our dreams to try to determine what that is and to get there. I don't feel like my life mission is done yet, but I feel like I've achieved a certain level of my life mission that I can be really really proud of. I'm wondering what it feels like when we are living our mission when we are there. Do you have any idea? Joyful. <laughs> yeah. It's very <laughs> that makes it's sense. very joyful. <laughs> it's really um yeah, it's joyful. I don't and I I mean there's more to my mission, but I feel like this is one part of my mission. I feel like um raising my four children was definitely a personal legend and a mission. I feel like this is another chapter of my 
of my personal legend. And I, I feel like there's, there's some more chapters yet to be written, but I think to get there, to be honest, I have to confront some more of my fears and some more of my dreams. What do you love most about being a woman? Oh, that's actually easy for me. What I love most about being a woman is, was, because I'm past my childbearing years, but uh, I'm 59, but was the opportunity to give birth to new life. It's something that you only get to do if you're in the human race anyway, if you're a woman. And uh, it's uniquely mind-blowing. And right right now I'm I'm reliving a little bit of that miracle because my oldest daughter who um, lives in New York, she's giving birth to twins and um, you know, in about a month. And so I'm watching her grow two lives at once. And it's crazy, crazy. It was crazy enough to like do one at a time, but she's having, there's two in there at the same time. And it's the most miraculous thing that, that we women have the privilege to do. So I'm wondering if for some of us who choose not to be a mother, to give birth to kids, children, do you think we are missing something? I think, well, you're missing, you're missing that. But I think that everybody who makes choices in life misses some other choice that they're not making, right? So like by making that choice, I missed a bunch of other things that I didn't do. And I, I don't think, I, I think, yeah, you're missing that because you're not doing it. But I think at the same time, you're making other choices that are meaning, really deeply meaningful and fulfilling to your personal legend, to your personal mission. And that's where each person should, should go. That's what I think. I think that each of us finds the place inside of us where we can find the joy and find the meaning and find the reason for our, our being alive. And for everyone, that's different. For me, I did have four children, but I know lots of people who, lots of women who, who and men, but we're speaking about women, who, who made the choice to take different path and to, to write their personal legend in, in their own way. And that's the right way we should live. That's how it should be. I love the way you speak about this. Yeah, that we all have different missions and gifts, and we do miss that, but they are, it's just part of our journey, right? Yeah, I promise by, by having children, you miss a whole ton of stuff. <laughs> <laughs> oh, yeah, that makes sense. Oh, years, my of God. Your, years of your life are just gone. Well, it's this beautiful dance, <laughs> life yeah, it's itself. A, you know what? That's a fantastic word to use. It's a dance. What is the most challenging aspect about being a woman from your perspective? Challenging aspect of being a woman. I guess that the most challenging aspect of being a woman in my life so far has been really the the way that society is structured that doesn't really allow for women who choose to have children to in the work world. Like I, I'm a lawyer. I was a very successful lawyer, but because I chose to have children, I took a, a different, I, I wasn't forced to, but I was kind of, kind of the work world forces women who have children into a different reality of what, what level of, of success they can find in their careers. And I think it's, even though it's a lot better than it used to be a lot better, but it's still there. And um, I, I felt it, oh my goodness, when I was a very young lawyer just out of law school and I was working for a large firm, which I will not name, here in Seattle. I moved back to Seattle here. I was in law school in, in New York. And I had my first child already. She was born right at the end of law school. And 
I was at work. I was working full time. And there was this assignment that I had, which was to prepare a complaint for for one of the one of the attorneys, you know, one of the partners. It wasn't a really super hard assignment, but it was assignment and they needed it by the morning. They needed to file it in the morning. I got it. I got the assignment. And then I got a call from my my daughter's child care provider that she was at like a child care center. And they said that your daughter has 103 fever. You have to come pick her up. And I'm like, oh, and my, my husband is a is a physician and he had like, you know, a, f- a full slew of patients for that for the afternoon. So I was like, OK, thank you. So I went to the, the attorney and I said, uh, um, I got your I got the assignment. I'll have it done by the morning when you need it. But I have to go right now and pick up my daughter because she has a fever. And she looked at me like I had just said the worst possible thing I could have ever said. And she said, what are, what are you doing? I said, I'm going to pick up my daughter. She has 103 fever. And she said, you didn't finish the assignment yet. I said, well, I'll go pick up my daughter. And when my husband comes home from work, I will come back to the office and finish the assignment. It'll be on your chair in the morning. And she thought that I had lost my mind. And so just the attitude, like, and can you imagine though, and this was a woman, yeah. can you imagine uh, yeah. if, 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 if instead of that as a response, when I walked in and said this, she said, wow, that's, I'm, I'm so sorry to hear your daughter is sick. And um, uh, of course, of course you should go pick up your daughter. I, I totally support what you're doing. And you tell me that the complaint will be done on my chair in the morning and I look forward to seeing it then. Or even being more flexible, even if you can't get that done because your daughter, then it's okay too, maybe in the afternoon. Well, they needed, to, they, needed to, they needed to file it. I guess she could have said, you know what, I'll take this off your plate and I'll get someone else to do it. She could okay. have, that would have been more supportive, yes. That's true. But, yeah. but I'm just saying that that the, the work environment, I think for me as as a woman in my life to date so far, has been the most, the most challenging um, aspect of trying to be way too many things at at one time you know trying to do trying to juggle different aspects of being a woman and being a professional and being a really smart capable human and it just we just run up against a lot of obstacles yeah i hear that over and over again yes and you're saying that this is getting better right karen now at this time it is getting better i i 100 believe it's getting better why did you choose to become a lawyer well, I actually wanted to be a politician. When I was just out of law school, I was a political science major in college and I was very active in different political things. And I thought I'm going to be a politician because I can make a difference in the world. I wanted to make a difference in the world. And then, so I went to Washington DC and I started working for a Senator and it was a great job. It was an amazing job. I was a legislative assistant and I loved it. And after three years of doing that, I was like, okay, if I really want to pursue politics, I got to go to law school. So I applied to law school and I, I went to law school. And then after my first year, I worked on the, the senator that I had uh, worked for. I worked on his campaign, his reelection campaign. And I hated it. I just, I hated it. It was just all about raising money. And I was like, this is not going to be my life. I cannot spend my entire life just talking to people, asking them for money for my campaign. So I just said to myself, well, that's okay. I don't have to be a politician because I'm in law school. I could be a lawyer. So I went back to law school and finished my next two years. Then I went to work for a law firm and tried to figure out where I fit into the legal structure of, of private law practice and jumped around a little bit, but ended up for most of my career doing elder law and working with clients who are older and their families. And it was very, very rewarding uh, to help people in those situations to get the help that they need to live a secure and, and safe and uh, happy life. 
What is the meaning of freedom to you, Karen? What is to be free? Ooh, that's a tough question in today's world. Because <laughs> yeah. so many people are not free, depending, of course, on how you define yeah. it. Right, right. There's political freedom and there's spiritual freedom. You don't have to, you could have one without the other. I know that for certain. If you look at what happened in the Holocaust, Jews did not have any kind of political freedom, zero. But some of many of the memoirs of I wrote, I read many, many memoirs, of course, during the course of my research. And it was what was astounding was the spiritual freedom that these people were able to maintain because they went inside themselves and said, my body is not free. Let's say I'm in a concentration camp or I'm living in a ghetto, but my spirit is free. They can't take away my my humanity. They can take my life. They can take food away from me, but they cannot take my spiritual freedom from me. And that's something that each of us, it's really hard if you're in an, a situation where you're imprisoned. Or if you look at um, Jewish people who were in the Soviet Union and were imprisoned in the Soviet Union, we called them refuseniks in the in this late 70s and 80s. They were people who were imprisoned in the Soviet Union for practicing their Judaism and studying and teaching Hebrew, like Natan Sharansky, who's now, you know, lives in Israel. He talks about retaining his spiritual freedom, even though he was in jail for years and years and years. And he said, they can put me in this prison, but they cannot take my spirit. So that's spiritual freedom that I think is meaningful to all of us. And it's harder to do if you live in a place which doesn't grant political freedom. I agree with that. I, I feel that deeply. But if you're lucky enough to live in a place that grants political freedom, then what it means to be free is to exercise your ability to practice both your political freedom and your spiritual freedom and try to bring them into some kind of, of whole. And if you can take your spiritual freedom and activate it into doing something out in the world, if you have the freedom to do so, to, to make your spiritual freedom a reality and to help others to come into that and have also have freedom, that's true freedom. At this time, what do you think is the world's greatest need? Oh, we're in the middle of a pandemic. It's easy to just say to get rid of the coronavirus. <laughs> True. <laughs> but that's a short-term a short-term desire. We will this will go away. I don't know how long it will be. None of us of course know how long it will be. But I think the world what the world really needs is again it's a cliche, but I'll explain what I mean by by, by my cliche of of peace. But by peace the only way to achieve peace in my opinion is if people t find within themselves, we talked before about how people have both the good and the bad within within them as humans. It will Peace will only come when enough humans, it's kind of like, you know, the, we all have this new vocabulary because of the pandemic, but like the herd immunity, we're going to get peace when we get herd immunity to people, you know, suppressing the evil side of themselves and letting the, the good side of themselves be the dominant force. When people can find the goodness in their souls and in their brains and in their hearts to show kindness to each other instead of looking at each other as the other, looking at others, other nations, other peoples, other races as, as people who are less than, as people who don't deserve something that I deserve, as something like that, then we'll be able to achieve peace through humanity all over the world. What is your understanding of the word love? I think love is one of those words that just depending on what color glasses you're wearing that day, it's it's too it's too cliche. Like it was it's too cliche <laughs> even to 
for me to have used it as like the the thing to to try to strive for because people use the word love to mean so many different things and so and there's so many different kinds of love that are in the world that you can articulate and so for me it's not a word that i use a lot because it's too nebulous but for me i think love in a personal sense love is the feeling that i i have for my family for the people who are very close to me with whom i have special bonds and also i recognize i'm an observant jewish person and I've studied the Bible my whole life, the, the Hebrew Bible. And of course, everybody knows the, the addict in the, in, the, in the Bible, which you should love your neighbor as yourself. And the word love is used there. In Hebrew, it's ve'ahavta l'reacha kamocha. You should love, ohev, ahav is, is the Hebrew word for love. And you should love your, your neighbor, your friend. Reacha is, can mean both neighbor and friend. Kamocha, like, like yourself. And there's, a, there's thousands of years of commentaries about what does that mean to love someone else as if as yourself? And I think if we can look at that phrase and think about what the Bible is teaching us about love, that it's something that you can you, you should extend to others, really what what you would want others to give back to you. That's it's it's a little bit of a different way of, of saying the same thing, which I think is also a very common concept. You know, have other do to others like you'd want them to do to you. But I think when it specifically comes to love, it gives us an insight as to what at least the the Hebrew Bible believes love is, which is how you act, how you treat others, how you behave in the world. Because if you behave towards others like you want them to behave to you, that will create love. That will lead the feelings of love to come between you and another person. That's a biblical conscript, which is to live in a world where people treat each other with kindness, especially the most vulnerable. How many times does it say in the Hebrew Bible to treat people who are in, to use biblical language? It's it's not modern, but to, you know the the orphan and the widow and and the stranger to treat them with 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 the greatest kindness that you can find. It means the oppressed. It means those that are that don't have you know the haves and the have-nots. These are the have-nots in those days in biblical times. I think it's teaching us what how to express love. Maybe not what love is but how to try to create it and express it. Now I want you to talk to us a bit more about the inspiration and intention of writing your book, My Soul is Filled with Joy. Well, my original intention was certainly to document my in-law, Sam and Esther, Gold, Sam and Esther Goldberg, their story of what happened to them. That was my original intention, but it completely, not completely, because I did tell their story, but it for me personally, it changed and it bloomed and blossomed into their story really becoming my story. So the book ended up becoming really two parts. There's part, not really, it actually, it's, there's part one, which is Sam and Esther's story. And I start from before the works. I want to give some background to what their lives were like before their their whole world was upended in in in, in World War II. And, but then I, I I take the reader through their lives until they meet each other. And then as they go on together through life, and I, I end their, their part of the story when they emigrate to America in, in 1949, and, and that's where I stop it. But then I, the second part of the story is my story and the story of my deciding to write this book, which is a crazy thing. Like I'm writing a book about my in-laws experience and it's, you know, it's not really, it's not my blood family. It's a family that I married into and kind of how that came to be. And then all the things the miraculous 
and amazing experiences that I had as I was um, on this journey that changed my life forever. So really became such a big part of my life that it's just, that's really what happened. My intention was to write their story, but it became, for me personally, it became so much more and so much bigger than that. And uh, yeah, that's. Talk to me for a moment a bit more about that, uh, Karen. How did your life change? In what ways? The biggest way, honestly, is, so I, just a tiny bit of background about me. I grew up here in Seattle, you know, lived a really lovely childhood in you know, here with two wonderful, loving parents, two brothers, grandparents, and cousins, and just lived a regular, you know, comfortable middle-class life. And uh, my father was an attorney. So yeah, so we, we just lived here and I had a very, a very privileged, lovely childhood. I went to private college at Barnard College. And then I went to, as I said, I went and worked for a senator and then I went to law school. Like, just like my life's just been, been lovely, really, absolutely <laughs> lovely. What I realized, it was, I'll tell you when, when, when it happened, because it was a moment, it's actually a moment in time. So my in-laws, my father, like I mentioned before, my father-in-law was a prisoner in the death camp Treblinka from June of 1942 until August of 1943. So 13 months. Most people that came to Treblinka were, came off the train and they were dead in, in, in 90 minutes, nine zero minutes. And he survived for 13 months. So it's it's remarkable, his survival there. Um, my mother-in-law, in the meantime, they didn't know each other at this time. She There was a roundup in her town, which is not very far from Treblinka, um, maybe like 15 miles away. But there was a roundup of all the Jews in the town. And she hid in a in a in an attic to escape and she and she survived the roundup she and she came out after the town was all gone basically and quiet and she ran out into the forest and she tried to find some people who would help her some non-jewish families that might give her some food or a place to hide and she was turned away over and over again and but then finally this one house that she knocked on the door the stish family she said can you help me i'm starving haven't eaten in 3 days and i need to hide and they said, yes, we will help you. And she hid in and around the Stish family farms. There were two, two families that, that lived next door to each other. And she was hiding there for a year when the, some of the prisoners at the Treblinka death camp, which was just, like I said, t- you know, 10, 15 miles away, um, did an, made an uprising. And my father-in-law was part of the part of the planning and execution of that of that uprising and they blew up the camp and in they they all tried to run away there were about 800 prisoners who were the workforce of the camp 800 Jews who were, they kept as prisoners there and so he started running my father-in-law ran out of the camp and he ran and he ran and he ran and he ended up in this part this forest the, the, this area was totally wooded of trees and that's the area that my mother-in-law had been hiding in and that's where they met she saw him they knew right away that each other were Jewish people. They started speaking in Yiddish, which, which which was their native language. The Jews of Poland, almost all of them spoke Yiddish. And he said, I just escaped from Treblinka. Can you help me? I need to hide. They're chasing the Nazis and the Ukrainians are, are, are not far behind. We need to hide. And she's like, she couldn't believe it. Somebody escaped from Treblinka. But she said, okay, come with me. And she took him to her, which, who she called her angels, the Stish families. And they knocked on the door there and said, this man just escaped from Treblinka. You have to hide us. They're they're out chasing after all the Jews who escaped. And this woman, rightly so, looked at her, Helena, and she said, you're crazy. You're nuts. I can't hide you. If they find you hiding in my barn, 
they're going to kill you guys for sure. And they're going to kill me and all my children. And that was absolutely true. But somehow Esther convinced her to hide in the barn, let the, allow them to hide in the barn. So they hid in the barn for like three days until the big search like kind of calmed down. And then they came out and Sam decided to stay and hide with Esther because he had nowhere to go anyway. Like his, he knew that his family was dead already. So he didn't have anywhere to go. Esther knew her whole family was already murdered. So they, they hid together and they went out and in deeper into the forest and they dug a pit and they lived in that pit. If you want to call it living, they lived in that pit for almost a whole year. They covered it with wooden planks and brush from the forest floor. So it would be like camouflaged. And the Stish family brought them food almost every day, like, or, you know, every day that it was safe to bring food, they brought them food and kind of left it there and they would get it after dark. They would only come out usually after dark. And then they were liberated by the Soviet army that came through, that came through Poland in the summer of 1944. So they lived in that pit for about a year. And when we went and visited, so I was able to locate the, the surviving children of these Stish families through my research. And we, my whole family went and visited them. And they said to us, as we were talking, you know, when we're done talking here, if you want, we'll take you out to the forest and show you the pit that your parents lived in. And we were like, what? How is it possible that the pit from 75 years ago is still there? And they said, oh, it's still there. So they showed us the pit. They walked us out into the forest and showed us. I was there with my husband and our four kids and one son-in-law. And they showed us, I mean, it's, it's deteriorated. It's, it's, you know, eroded, it's full of leaves, but it's definitely a pit. And it was when I was staring into that pit that I, my, I changed like forever. And I realized that I have taken my life for granted and what I have, like the easy life that I have lived for granted. I knew that when I would go back home to Seattle, I'd go to my nice house with a refrigerator full of food and a closet full of clothes and my in-laws had nothing like that. They lived here in this dirt. And that was the moment where I decided to live my life more aware of the goodness and more full of trying to live with more gratitude, really, is really the way to put it. So that's a long, long answer with a buildup to your question. But I I that was there were other things that I that really fundamentally changed about me, but that's the biggest one. So gratitude, yeah, that's the word. But the story is amazing. And yeah, I don't believe anything just randomly happens. So everything happens for a reason. Life is teaching us to become more loving and manifest more love here in this world. So I think, yeah, you're one of these agents, change agents. So you're being called to help with the mission to make this place a more peaceful place. Thank you, Karen. Thank you. I have a few more questions for you. Before I ask those questions, would you like to add anything or read a passage in your book? Oh, well, read a passage in my book. I didn't, I could grab my book. Yeah. There's one passage that I could read that I would love to read, actually. Yeah. It's, uh, it's not too long. I wrote this piece. It's on page 231 of the book. And I wrote it after my trip to Poland. Here's what I wrote. The Poland trip was a roller coaster ride, from the horror of Medonic to the joy of finding the Goldberg farm in Bagatella, from the darkness of Treblinka to the goodness of the Stisch family, from the disgust of Auschwitz and Birkenau to the promise of the Poles reconnecting with their Judaism. The entire time, 
Sam and Esther hovered, whispering in my ear that they knew the truth, that humans have the capacity for the greatest evil, to torture and kill, to shoot people into a pit, to gas them to death, to burn their bodies and extract the gold from their teeth, to hunt them down in the forest for a kilo of sugar. But there was another truth that they also knew, that humans had the highest capacity for kindness, to give a fellow prisoner a cube of sugar, to hide and feed people as they're being hunted like animals, to cook food in a wash pot at Treblinka and bring it to the dying in the hospital, to stand up for someone else, even in a death camp, to save others when it puts your own children in danger. I opened up to the holding of these contradictory thoughts in my mind at the same time and living with the tension that it creates. Before this trip, I knew that I would discover new facts and meet new people, but what I didn't know was that I would reach the dark matter of the human soul. I now accept that humans are at once both evil and good. My work on Sam and Esther's story and my visit to Poland taught me that I can choose which side of my nature to express. This is my new reality. How do you define success these days? What is to be successful to you? (laughs) (laughs) That's so funny because um, I just, even before COVID, but it like really happened when COVID started, this whole, the whole pandemic and staying home and everything. And I started my own little podcast as a 60 second daily like podcast and I call it gratitude in a minute. I just wrote a podcast. I just recorded one last week about the idea of redefining success Mm, (laughs) because I think that this pandemic has taught us that we really need to redefine what does it mean to be successful. And because if you say success is is like the pre-pandemic sort of way we lived, you're just never going to be successful. We, we, it's just not the same. And like for me, I was, I was going around talking about my book and, you know, doing all kinds of, I was re- doing research in libraries and all these things that I just am not able to do right now. And so that can't be the way I'm defining success. And, and so I had to redefine success and I did it in a very small way. Now, of course, I'm, I'm working on another book, which is really about my family, which is a totally different story. It's an American story. And it, the research is super fun instead of super horrific. But right. I, one of my, my daughter who's pregnant, who I mentioned before, she was visiting for a couple of weeks and she taught me how to make sourdough bread. And I know it's a whole craze in COVID. Everyone's doing sourdough bread. But I'd never done it before. And she showed me how. And she showed me that it's not hard. It's just particular. Mm -hmm. And we made the most delicious sourdough bread for our Shabbat dinner that we had one Shabbat that she was here. Shabbat is the Jewish Sabbath. We celebrate it Friday night to Saturday night. And I said to her, I said, we have redefined success. (laughs) We look So uh, in a sense, I have redefined success for myself because especially the first couple of months, I found it really hard to be creative in my, in my writing. And so I'm redefining success in terms of what, what I'm achieving right now. And I'm trying to be kind to myself because we're in a time that's not normal, but success in general, though, beyond the COVID craziness that we're in really is to do something that you, that I'll speak personally, to do something that I am personally satisfied with that I have done something as well as I can do it, that I've achieved a goal that I set out for myself to achieve, even if it's small, like it's okay that it's a small success. Success doesn't have to be, I don't know, like you don't have to be Bill Gates to consider yourself a success. You can be Karen Trigger and consider the fact that I decided to write a book and I actually wrote it and published it. That's a success. And so, yeah, so I think COVID is making us rethink what does it mean to be successful and what is success? But 
I do think that success still stems from your inner soul and what do you want to achieve? And then if you can achieve that, you are successful. I love the way you said about being kind to yourself. So that's part of the success journey, being kind to oneself. Right. Two more questions. If you knew you would die soon, meaning leaving the body, would you make any change in your life or do anything differently? I don't think so. I think I would want to try to get all of my kids near me and enjoy enjoy that part of my life for whatever I had left. But I think that the person that I have have worked hard to become is the person that I'll that I'll be on my way out with because that's the person that I'll be comfortable living in the next life, whatever the next life means. In you know, I I I believe that we we leave our bodies, but we're not gone. I I don't I mean I don't know. There's no way to know till we get there. But I do believe in some form of of spiritual life after our bodies have left the world have, or have you know have died. And so I feel like the person that I am is going to be a nice person in the next world. I'm going to do okay there. So yeah, because I think that my efforts to bring the kindness to be the person who extends the hand, to be the person who helps, to be the person who tries to speak, say the nice thing to someone instead of the nasty thing to someone. I mean, how many times have you been somewhere and someone says something so nasty and you're like, wow, you did not need to say that. I mean, I, I'm also not the kind of person who would say you did not need to say that, you know, because that's also nasty. <laughs> right. <laughs> True. But I, but I, might, I, might, I might be the kind of person, or at least I hope I'm the kind of person that might take that person aside and say, I'm really sorry that that happened to you. That's not who you are. And I know that I might, you know, extend a kind word to that person later. I guess the person that I that I hope that I am and that I hope that I'm continuing to strive to be. If I had a couple more months, I would continue to be that person and feel like wherever I'm going, uh, I have a good base. Yeah, I don't believe in life after death. It's life after life in a way. I love the way you said that, too. You said we leave the body, but we are not gone. That resonates, Karen. That's very spiritual. <laughs> what are three things about life you know for sure as of now? Three things I know about life for sure as of now. I know that we're all going to die. Our bodies will die. I know that for sure. I know that we, this is something else that I learned more deeply th through the book. And we, we, we touched on it on it earlier, but it, it, fits, it fits into the response to your question, which is that I'm sure that we can choose how we're behaving while we're here. We can choose what part of our humanity we are going to express. And that's something that I'm, sh I'm more sure of now than I've ever been. One more thing that I'm sure of, which is if you don't try, you'll never do it. I have one final question, but this is a technical one. Where can we find more information about you, your books, products, services, and future projects? Well, I have a website. It's uh, karentriger.com. So it's my name. On my website, it has information about the podcast that I'm doing, Gratitude in a Minute. And it has information about, about the, the book, my, my Soul is Filled with Joy. You can buy that on, uh, on Amazon, of course. And, but there's a link on my, on my website to, to, to purchase the book if you want to. Um, and I, have, I haven't really updated it much because COVID has you know, gone bananas, but I do have a list of all the places that I've spoken so far and then you know, the places that were, I guess, put on hold. But I have like my schedule there and I also have a way to contact me there. And I think that when I speak to audiences, I my audiences leave very inspired because of my, the story is very powerful as you, you only heard just a tiny bit of it, but it's really very powerful. 
And but the reason it's powerful is because it leads to lessons, the lessons about gratitude, about choice, about looking into your own family. Like we all have families and everybody has a story. I chose to look into this story, but everybody has a story that's, and it'll blow your mind really if you just dig a little bit. So those are some of the messages that I leave, that I try to leave people with both from the book itself. And then also like when I speak to people, those are some of the things that resonate deeply. I think with people, I do a lot of speaking with schools. I'm a speaker at the our Washington State Holocaust Center, and they send our speak the speakers all around to different public schools around the state. And so, I mean, not during COVID, but generally I, I do that quite a bit around around the state. And I find that very meaningful and powerful as well. So, um, and I, I have done a few by Zoom. So if you're, if you live in a place where you have a school or a, a group, a, a synagogue, a church, a, a group of people that want to read the book and have a book, you know, have me come virtually to your to your book club. I've done that lots of times. So I'm very open to talking about these issues and presenting different parts of it with people as much as as much as possible. I wrote the book to get the story out there. So whatever aspects and ways I can do that, I'm eager, eager to do so. Um, but mostly most of my information you can find on my on my website. And um, the Gratitude in a Minute podcast can be found on Alexa or any any your whatever podcast deliverer you use. You can just put in gratitude in a minute, Karen Trager, you'll find it. It's a 60 second daily podcast. Thank you so much again, Karen. And I'll have the links down below in the written form too. So it will be easily accessed. Thank you again. And we'll talk soon. Thank you. Thank you so much for having me. (laughs) Bye for now. Thank you for listening. To learn more about Karen Traeger and her work, please visit karentrager.com. To learn more about this podcast, please visit fitforjoy.org podcast. I want to thank the Patreon members, Lawrence McGrath, Mark Basden, Terry Clayton, and Aidan Bickrock. Thank you again for listening, and bye for now. Mm-hmm.